Hello, I'm Carrick MacDonald and this is Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. In this programme, we're going on a trip around the sites of the castles which once stood in and around Rutherglen and Cambus Lang. There have been more than 2,000 castles in Scotland. Many of those have vanished, leaving hardly a trace of their existence. Indeed, all but one of the castles in this area have disappeared. Even though they've gone, or become dilapidated, historical records leave us enough information to tell us what they looked like and provide details of the people who lived in them in times of peace as well as in times of conflict. Given Scotland's often turbulent history, the castles around the two towns were often witness to periods of unrest. I'm standing on Stonelaw Road in Burnside at the corner of Viewpart Drive. Across the road is Tesco, which is probably the ugliest building in Burnside. That's where the rural cinema stood until it was demolished in 1960. Just to the left of Tesco is another eyesore, the site of an old filling station, which has lain vacant for some years now. Behind that is a row of flats built maybe in the early 1970s. That's where Stonelaw Tower stood. In fact, those flats are known as Stonelaw Towers. By the way, this part of Burnside isn't actually Burnside at all, as David Jackson explains. You know, we call Burnside, see the Burnside shop centre the day? We call that Burnside. That is isn't Burnside. Mm-hmm. Burnside came for a farm, and the farm's away high up, up Burnside, at, at um, the Bicatkin Bypass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where Burnside is. Mm-hmm. Burnside wasn't all the way down the hill. In yeah. fact, what we call Burnside today isn't Burnside. That's the village of Stonewall, the coal mining mm-hmm. village, and Spenzies mm-hmm. Stonewall Towers was there. Yeah. So really, that shop centre should be called Stonelaw. Stonelaw, yeah. Well, yeah. Stonelaw Tower isn't really a castle at all, but it is listed on the Scottish Castles Association website, where they refer to it as a castellated mansion. The first map I could find on which the name Stonelaw appears is William Forrest's 1816 map. Forrest's map shows the names of the people who owned the local estates, and the owner of Stonelaw, shown on the map, is a man called General Spence. He was provost of Rutherglen on several occasions in the late 1790s and early 1800s, and was the last of the Spences of Stonelaw. Apart from operating coal mines on his land, he took an interest in local agriculture, and is credited with helping to improve the soil conditions on the farms around the town. Spence opened his Stonelaw Colliery in 1774, and it comprised three pits. As for the tower itself, it formed part of a larger, lower-level structure, built in 1883, to replace the earlier estate house shown on William Forrest's map. General Spence, as we said, was a coalmaster, but there's no evidence to support the theory that Stonelaw Tower once housed the beam of a steam engine, used in mining operations. It's thought that any mining activity around the site of the tower would have been small scale, certainly compared to that at the three pits elsewhere comprising Stonelaw Colliery, and would predate the use of steam engines and the construction of the tower itself. In appearance, Stonelaw Tower was designed to look older than it was. With its three storeys 
and small Gothic arched windows. It tried its best to look like a medieval keep. The tower didn't really match the rest of the building, apart from its castellated flat roof. Following the death of General Spence, Stonelaw Tower passed through the hands of a variety of owners. In 1928, the local Masonic Lodge purchased it from the Reed family, although the building was never consecrated as a Masonic temple. Stonelaw Tower's last resident was Councillor Alan Tilston, one of the first men to stand for election for the Scottish National Party. Mr Tilston and his wife lived there from the 1930s until 1963. The Shell Petroleum Company bought the tower and surrounding land in 1965, at which time, dilapidated and vandalised, the tower was demolished. I'm now halfway down Baronald Street, on its west side, looking across the road at some large industrial units. This whole area is quite heavily industrialised, as it has been for many years. But where those industrial units are was the site of Farm Castle. In fact, round the back of those units is a housing development called Farm Castle Court. The Reverend David Ewer's History of Rulliger and East Bride, published in 1793, says this about Farm and its castle. Next to the town, on the east, and along the side of the river, is the estate of Farm. It is said to have been once the private property of some of the Stuarts, kings of Scotland. It afterwards belonged to the family of Crawford, who, naming it from themselves, called it Crawford's Farm. It came afterwards into the possession of Sir Walter Stuart of Minto, who dwelt in the castle about the year 1645. He is reported to have been a gentleman of extraordinary prudence and humanity, and during the commotions of the times to have obtained for Rutherland many favours. The Flemings had it for some time in their possession. It is now called Farm and has for some times past been the property of James Farby, Esquire, who made a purchase of it from the Duke of Hamilton. On the estate is an ancient castle, the family seat of Mr Farry. The period in which it was built is unknown, but the thick walls, the few narrow and irregularly placed windows, the strong battlements are evidences of its antiquity and that it was erected as a place of strength. Being kept in excellent repair, it is wholly habitable and may continue for ages to come. A beautiful pattern of the manor after which the habitations of the powerful barns of Scotland were anciently constructed. Mr Farvey, to prevent his lands from being inured by inundations, has lately raised a bank about 600 yards in length. There's a photograph of Farm Castle taken by W. Ross Shearer, included in his book Rutherglen Lore, published in 1922. The photograph shows a three-storey keep thought to date from the 15th century. In later years, the keep formed one corner of a courtyard within a castellated mansion, similar in a way to the set-up at Stonelaw Tower. The original keep of Farm Castle was genuinely medieval, though, and not a Victorian copy, and its origins may date back to the 1300s, based on writing found in the roof by workmen making alterations there in 1792. As we heard, 
you're told us the estate of farm once belonged at different times to the Stuarts, the Crawfords, the Flemings and the Farries, which family name many Reglonians pronounce as Fairy, as in Fairy Street. There's also mention of the Earl of Douglas laying claim to the estate in 1389. The Farries moved out of Farm Castle in the 1890s, but retained ownership of the estate, and the castle remained habitable for many years after they left. One of the last tenants was James Anderson, manager of the farm collieries, whose son was reported to be living in the castle in the 1920s. There's also mention of a Miss Robertson living in the castle, and she may possibly have been its last tenant. Increasingly pressed in upon by factories and housing, Shearer foresaw the fate of Farm Castle, writing about the grime and smoke of foundries and the encroachment of numerous tenement buildings. It was demolished, Wikipedia tells us, in the 1960s, by which time it was being used to store obsolete mining equipment. I'm now just to the north of Main Street in Rutherglen. There's a square of buildings comprising an L-shaped block of tenement flats and the Salvation Army, bounded by King Street, Green Road, Victoria Street and Castle Street. And where those buildings are was the site of Rutherglen Castle. In fact, on the wall of the tenement flats up until a couple of years ago was a wee brown oval plaque telling us that Rutherglen Castle stood near there. But the plaque like the castle, has vanished. The history books tell us that Rutherglen Castle was a substantial building and one of some historical importance. According to Shearer, it was considered one of the strongest fortresses in the kingdom and would afford a sense of security to the inhabitants. I've not been able to find a picture of the castle, which, according to Wikipedia, was a large and important castle, having been built in the 13th century, the walls reportedly being five feet thick. This is from David Ewer's history. The castle of Rutherglen was ranked among the ancient fortresses of Scotland and might on that account give the town a claim to more than ordinary attention from the king. This castle, which is said to have been at first built by the monarch that gave name to the town, was considered as a place of importance so late as the year 1309. In his Reminiscences of Rutherglen, published in 1890, Hugh Muir also mentions the origins of the castle and tells us that several authors carry back the origin of the castle to King Ruther, who is said to have reigned upwards of two centuries before the Christian era. As for the castle's historical importance, that relates mainly to the conflict between Robert the Bruce and John Balliol, who contested the Scottish throne in the early 14th century. This is how Ewer's history describes the conflict. At that unhappy period, Scotland was thrown into the greatest disorder by powerful parties contending for the crown. An application had, by mutual consent, been made to Edward, King of England, to settle by way of arbitration the differences that had arisen amongst them. That ambitious prince accepted the offer but with a view to annex the Kingdom of Scotland to the Crown of England. To accomplish his design, he perfidiously fomented the differences he had undertaken amiably to compose. Improving the advantages that were thrown in his way, he reduced, by the assistance of Belial's interest, a great part of Scotland under his power. 
I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you're listening to Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. In this programme, we're visiting the sites of the castles which stood in and around Rutherglen and Cambus Lang. So, you tell us that this conflict saw the occupation of Rutherglen and many other Scottish castles by the English, initially under Edward I and by Bruce's own enemies within Scotland. Edward was supposedly acting as arbitrator in the dispute between Bruce and Balliol, but in fact sided with Balliol. By the way, in 1263, Balliol's father, also John, founded the Oxford College which bears his name. The castle of Rutherglen, with many others, fell into the hands of the English, or rather into the hands of the anti-Brucean party, aided by the English. King Robert Bruce, who had to combat not only the forces of Edward, but Balliol's party in Scotland, laid siege to the castle of Rutherglen as a place of too great importance to remain in the possession of the enemy. Gradually, Bruce gained the upper hand against Balliol and the English, who were led from 1307 by Edward's less able son, Edward II. In 1309, the same year Bruce held his first parliament in St Andrews, he laid siege to Rutherglen Castle. Edward II sent his nephew, the Earl of Gloucester, to relieve the English garrison. It is not probable that the siege of the castle of Rutherglen was raised by the Earl of Gloucester at the time above referred to. It might, however, have fallen into the hands of the English some time afterwards and be retaken by Edward Bruce in the year 1313. But in whatever point of light that matter is viewed, it appears that this place of strength was, by both Scots and English, thought to have been of considerable importance. So it was not until 1313 that Rutherglen Castle was finally reclaimed by Bruce's brother Edward. That same year, John Balliol died, and Bruce went on to inflict a decisive defeat on the English at Bannockburn a year later. Both events strengthened his grip on the Scottish crown. Rutherglen Castle was spared demolition by Bruce, who destroyed many other Scottish strongholds he reclaimed. So determined was he that they wouldn't fall into the hands of his enemies again. By the 16th century, the castle was in the hands of the Hamiltons of Elliston, Lairds of Shawfield. But by then, all that remained of the original castle was the Great Tower. It was burnt to the ground by Regent Murray in 1569, a year after defeating his half-sister Mary Queen of Scots at the Battle of Langside. This was an act of revenge on the Hamiltons for being supporters of the Queen. The Hamiltons seemed to have the final word in the matter, however, as Murray was fatally wounded a year later in Linlithgow by a carbine shot by James Hamilton of Bothwell Hoch, making Murray the first head of government and possibly the first person ever to be assassinated by a firearm. Here's how Ewer's history describes the final years of Rutherglen Castle. One of the principal towers was, however, soon repaired, and being enlarged by some modern improvements, became the seat of the Hamiltons of Elliston, Lairds of Shawfield. At length, on the decline of that family, it was, about a century ago, left to fall into ruins, and by frequent dilapidations was soon levelled with the ground. So, Rutherglen Castle became a ruin sometime in the late 16th century, 
its remains, according to Shearer, being ruthlessly shovelled away to build dikes, outhouses, rockeries, etc., until scarcely a trace was left to show it ever existed. It's thought that dressed stonework on some of the oldest buildings in the town came from the ruins of the castle. Is this the right way? Don't see any signs of a mound. Uh, hang on. A bit more promising. Well, here we go. Now I'm in a park in Hall Side, out beyond halfway. I'm not even sure what the park is called, but it's bounded on the west by Hallside Boulevard and to the north by Elder Crescent. In this park was the site of Drumsagard Castle. The castle itself is long gone, but according to the Drumsagard Village Residents Association website, I should still be able to see the mound on which the castle stood. Uh, quite flat on top. Again, we suggest a good location for a castle. Terrific view. Way up to the camp, sees the local Scythe Hills. Uh, see the high flats over it. Not sure where that is. That's a wonderful view up here. So yeah, the mound is definitely still here. Quite clearly defined. So yeah, the site of Strumsagard Castle. The Residents Association website tells us that Drumsagard Village was once the site of a 14th century stone castle, which towered over the surrounding countryside. The area was also known as Drumsargart or Drumsargard, meaning Ridge of the Priest. The castle was made of very heavy stone and built on the site of a much earlier timber fortification on top of an artificial mound, which served to keep the fortification above the surrounding land which was prone to flooding. The land originally belonged to John Murray of Drumsagard, but it was forfeited in 1306 by Edward I for supporting Robert the Bruce during the Wars of Independence. Like Bothwell Castle, a few miles to the east, the castle came under the ownership of the Douglas family around 1370. With the demise of the Black Douglas's family in 1455, Drumsagard was gifted to the Duke of Hamilton by James II, it eventually fell into ruin, and by the late 1700s, the last stones of the castle had been removed to build the farms around Hallside. As we saw earlier, the remains of Rutherglen Castle were similarly recycled around the same time. The mound on which the castle stood remained largely undisturbed for another century, before being eroded over time by agricultural activity. The name of the barony of Drumsagard which had originated in the reign of Alexander II in the early 1300s, was changed to Cambus Lang in the 17th century. The Hamiltons retained the land until the 1920s when it was sold. Nothing to see now, of course. Castle's long gone, but you can see why a good location to build a castle, given the view of the surrounding countryside. It's a great location. Right. Off to Gilbertfield now. So far, I've seen the places where castles used to be. I'm off now to our last port of call, 
where there will be an actual castle for me to look at. I just hope I can find it. Of course, I hadn't reached my destination. Due to road closures, I got a bit lost and ended up at Flemington Farm, where the farmer very kindly pointed me in the right direction. But when I got there, things weren't quite as I expected. Right, I think I picked the wrong time to be making this programme because I'm in a building site just now. I can see the castle, but I can't get at it. Uh, the road up to the farm is blocked off by uh, workmen and fences and so on so I get the impression I'm kind of trespassing at the moment but I saw the castle from a distance, got a couple of photographs of it but uh, I'm going to be at a hasty retreat and do the rest from home I think. at least I saw it though The Historic Environment Scotland website describes Gilbert Field as an L-shaped mansion from the early 17th century it had three stories above a vaulted ground floor and was built of roughly coursed red and yellow sandstone rubble with grey sandstone dressings. It's thought that the lands of Gilbert Field take their name from Gilbert, the 13th century Bishop of Caithness, who was part of the Murray family. Gilbert Field Estate, which was part of the Barony of Drumsagar, was bought in 1591 by Sir Gilbert Cunningham of Easter Moffat. He built the castle at Gilbert Field at the foot of Deckmont Hill in 1607. One of the heirs to Gilbert Field was John Cunningham. The local church records from 1658 describe him as the old laird, who constantly absented himself from the kirk. The local minister failed to persuade him to attend, so the presbytery sent the ministers from Blantyre and Cobride to see if they could prevail upon the old laird to attend church, but to no avail. The view at the time was that the old man seemed to prefer to wander among the trees which grew in great profusion around Gilbert Field, or to hide away in the castle's lofty turrets, heedless to the call of the Kirk Bell. In 1701, the estate passed into the hands of the Hamiltons of Torrance. Perhaps the most famous member of that family was William Hamilton of Gilbert Field. A soldier like his father... He retired from the army at an early age, the life of the country gent, according to one source, suiting him better than the army. Hamilton also found time to write poetry, his work being admired by both Alan Ramsay and Robert Burns. I couldn't find much about the history of Gilbert Field after the Hamiltons, but we do know that the estate was sold in 1826. By the middle 1800s, the castle had become dilapidated, but it was still inhabited by a gamekeeper called Joseph Kirby. In 1850, Mr Kirby was shot and killed by a blacksmith from Glasgow called Andrew Forrest, who was put on trial for murder, but walked free from court, the jury having returned a not-proven verdict. Forrest's defence was that he had been set upon by a dog trained by Mr Kirby to attack trespassers, insisting that he had meant to shoot the dog and not the unfortunate gamekeeper. And then, in 1916, four men from the Cambuslang area were charged with having maliciously destroyed and pulled down the castle's south bastion. In their defence, the accused claimed 
to have spotted a stone sticking out from the building's turret, which they regarded as a hazard. So they removed the object with a rope, but they also managed to pull down a mass of other material with it. Since then, the castle at Gilbert Field has suffered further dilapidation, with the roof falling in and, in the 1950s, the eastern half of the southern wing collapsing. There are plans, however, to preserve the ruin of the castle as a monument and a visitor attraction as part of the new housing development. If these preservation plans do come to fruition, then Gilbert Field, or at least its still impressive remains, will survive, unlike the other castles in the area, which sadly have been lost forever. I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you've been listening to Halfway to Borough, the two towns' local history show on Cam Glen Radio. I hope you enjoyed this programme about the castles of Rutherglen and Cambuslang. The extracts from US History of Rutherglen and East Kilbride were read by Anne Young. Thanks also to Colin Finlay, John Esselment, Jim Campbell and Ian Young of Rutherglen Heritage Society for their information and advice. The music was by Sugar Nifty. Until next time, thanks for listening. How do you look after your teeth and gums? Brush your teeth um, every every time you wake up and at bedtime. Make sure you get like everywhere under your mouth, even the back of your teeth. If you kind of don't, then you'll have them fall out. If you don't look after your teeth, you'll get black and brown. To help keep your teeth and gums healthy, visit the dentist regularly. To register with a dentist, simply telephone or visit a practice in your area and ask if you can register with them. You can find a dentist near you using the NHS Inform Service Directory. You're listening to Press Pause on Cam Glen Radio. This is a programme that focuses on nature sounds to promote relaxation and mindfulness. For the next half an hour, you'll hear the sounds of Dune Ponds Nature Reserve.